Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to episode number 31 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pizzola, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And I'm excited about this week's episode. There's been a lot of people who've been craving some football discussion, reached out to me personally, and I think our guest this week is perfect to appease that. We're bringing in Eric e- Eric Eager, the VP of Research and Development at Pro Football Focused, the co-host of the PFF Forecast which is fantastic and is kind of a must-watch for me every single week, even though I barely consume any content. Former professor as well. Eric, great to actually finally talk to you face-to-face as we're recording on Zoom here, uh, as I think we've had a lot of common interactions in the past, but uh, have never really spoken to one another. So thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob, Johnny. I'm a religious uh, listener to the first 30 uh, episodes of Circles Off. I've learned uh, a lot. And uh, I think that's a, the awesome part about this space is that, you know, everybody has these like great perspectives and there's aspects of sports betting that, you know, I haven't you know thought of before. And I get to to hear from you guys and, and hopefully, uh, you know, listen to the forecast and stuff like that. Uh, you, you get the same from us. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm going to put you on the spot immediately now. Uh, we usually give you like a rough outline to our guests of what we want to talk about. But now that I know that you've actually listened to episodes, just want to know, your favorite episode or maybe favorite conversation that's happened so far? Yeah, I, there was one where you had Spanky on, where you commented when I think it was I think Spanky basically like made a bet out of spite um, just to like fool some of the the folks that were like working with you know trying to reverse engineer his algorithms. And I remember you said something to the effect of, "There's nothing that makes me more happy than somebody doing that out of spite." <laughs> okay, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, he's working with some betting partners who be feeding stuff through their accounts and they were betting it out elsewhere. And he was in tune with what was going on. So he started feeding some bad plays into there, which I, I like. I mean, it's the game within the game. But anyways, um, Eric, let's, let's give the people that might not know you a bit of your background, um, where you're from, what you do, how you got involved with, uh, with PFF. Yeah, it's a pretty, like, I would say whenever anybody asks me, you know, like, hey, how do you get a career in sports analytics? I I almost always say, like, not the way that I did because it it was fairly circuitous. I I was a a college football player in uh, Minnesota Um, when I was younger. I I went to Minnesota State, which I know both of you guys are Canadian. Mark Trestman and I have the same uh, alma mater. He played uh, there as well, like, you know, 30 years before me. Um, and, and after that, it was kind of like, you know, I had kind of worn weary of football and I was, you know, kind of like, well, I, I spent my whole like young life, like optimizing for this game. And I didn't, you know, have as great of a college experience as I wanted to. So then I decided to go to the university of Nebraska to study for my PhD in math. Um, you know, and I, I went there, uh, got my PhD in a topic called mathematical biology, um, a subset of that is epidemiology, which I always thought had practical applications. And then, of course, the last you know twenty months uh, have have sort of shown me all the uh, ways you know I could have gone had I stayed in in math. Um, 
And then after that, I, I got a, a professor job at the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. That's where uh, Packers general manager uh, Brian Gutekunst went. Uh, that's where my wife's from, and so we we settled in there for a few years. We you know started a family, had kids. I, you know, I really did like being a professor, but it was kind of you know for lack you know lack of a better term like boring. Like I just you know I, I got tenure when I was thirty. I you know I really you know was kind of like searching for things. I was a consultant for a lot of different like government agencies. I had a, a metric that was going to be like used by the Environmental Protection Agency and then Donald Trump got elected president. So uh, it didn't. <laughs> and so like kind of out of frustration, I decided to, um, you know, start writing for PFF. And, and um, over time that kind of, you know, I kind of emerged as one of the better writers. Uh, George Shahuri and I started the PFF forecast when both of us had other jobs. Um, and then eventually, uh, Chris Collinsworth, uh, who, you know, owns mo most of PFF and then Neil Hornsby, the guy who founded PFF decided to bring us on and start a data science group. Uh, and then through that, you know, through that, I mean, I wasn't much, you know, I was a very big football fan, but I wasn't re really a sports better, even a DFS player, you know, until, you know, obviously having that data in my hands and then sort of seeing what people were gravitating to that sort of really when not only did we obviously start producing betting content, but I actually started betting games and, and actually trying to sort of test my beliefs and things like that. But yeah, that that's the path. I don't know necessarily if anybody else wants to take it, but that's the one I've taken. So you had no prior uh, previous experience in betting prior to joining PFF. That's right. Yeah. And that, yeah, it was just one of those things where, you know, in the States, obviously it's not legal. And, and, you know, I, I do now my betting partner and I, you know, he had a bunch of offshore accounts, but it was always sort of something that was, you know, frowned upon and things like that. And, you know, people weren't even producing betting content back then. I joined PFF in 15. It was still kind of new, right? Not every single person was trying to pick games and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you, you soon find out, and I certainly found out that, you you know, there's so much to learn. It's way more about way more than just making a number on a game, right? Like there's so much that goes into it. Um, and I, I think, you know, one of the things I learned as a professor and, and, you know, scholarship and teaching and learning and stuff is that if you make your students have to sort of bet their beliefs, they learn a lot more quickly. And I, I certainly believe that that's one of the reasons why, you know, I think, you know, way more, way differently about the game than I did when I started. I think that's, that's a really good point. Go ahead, Johnny. You wanted to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say, no, it's a great point for sure. Um, pretty exciting story starting from something that, you know, was a math background, but not necessarily anything to do with, let alone betting, but not even anything sports related. So, um, I guess it's seldom you find that transition. What I wanted to ask about was, uh, you know, your current day-to-day -day betting right now. Um, you know, I know you're betting football. Would you be able to like describe your process, what you're betting on? Are you originating, you know, where, where are you trying to play? What markets, things like that, and give a kind of a background for the listeners. Yeah, I think so. I, I I do bet other sports. Like I bet things like props in hockey. I bet some CFL when the WNBA is on, I bet that. And I think for the most part in those, in those sports, I, I do try to make my own number. I think those markets are, are way more of a, you know, where you can somewhat originate um, the NFL and, and to a lesser extent, college football are way different than that. Right. I mean, for the most part, those, those markets are pretty efficient. You're trying to get down early you're trying to, um, you know, use some qualitative information. Um, for the most part, like my, my podcast, the PFF forecast is a lot of that on Sunday nights, right after Sunday night football, George Shahuri and I are trying to, 
you know, sort, sort of find the numbers that we think will, will move in our direction. Um, that, that's a very big part of it. Um, the other part of it is, is, you know, so sides and totals, I mean, like they are what they are in the NFL. Um, you know, obviously people can win, make money on them. Um, but like for me, it's a lot of prop markets. It's a lot of, uh, you know, you know, team totals, stuff like that. That's maybe a little bit more derivative uh, is where I spend the majority of my focus, um, you know, and, and then college football sides and totals as well. So the interesting thing to me is there is you're a PhD in math. Uh, you've talked about incorporating some element of subjective analysis into your football handicapping. Was that always the case? Because I, I'm a huge math guy myself as well. Um, I studied applied statistics in university. And for me, it was a very difficult process to eventually admit to myself that I might need to incorporate some subjective analysis. It was always coming up with a, a number on a game, modeling probabilities and saying, okay, this is the, this is the number. And then over time, I was like, eh, maybe there are some other elements that I, I can account for, um, or more of a higher degree of uncertainty in this specific number. Um, did, did you like, were you always like that in the sense that you started in, including subjective analysis right out of the go, or was that an evolution? Mostly an evolution, but I, I would say like the subjectivity is mostly, and this is, I think this is a great discussion topic as far as, you know, if you have like a public facing model or you have a, you have a public facing product, like what PFF is like all of PFF is a public facing product, but like as a sports better, like, I don't think that you can sort of have a set it and forget it model, especially in really efficient markets. Right. Like I think there are aspects of, you know, like for example, like home field advantage, what was that going to be like last year? What was it going to be like this year? I think one thing you talked about, Rob, when you were talking, I think on this podcast was, you know, the league-wide scoring environment. Like one hypothesis I made was, you know, when I when I used, okay, what's the league-wide scoring environment for totals? I used 2018 because 2019 had a lot of injured quarterbacks. It was a little bit suppressed. 2020, like road quarterbacks were so efficient. I didn't think that was going to happen again. And so I used 2018, but I could have been, I could have been wrong. You know, I could have been buried on that. And without a mechanism to sort of go in and make adjustments, like I don't necessarily know if there's a way not to be able to be agile. And I think that that's a really hard part, um, you know, of having sort of like a public facing number and having, you know, actually betting the games yourself because, you know, those things change. And, you know, it's really hard to do software engineering on the fly without making huge mistakes. And so sometimes you kind of have to say, okay, well, this is the number I make on this game based upon the model that's in production, but X, Y, and Z is the reason why maybe I'm not betting it. And, and or here's why maybe it, it only shows, you know, maybe it doesn't show an edge, but, you know, if I add these two factors, maybe it's a half a percent or something. So to me, I think that you always have to be able to add subjective things. And then furthermore, like the, the subjective stuff is how you build the models in the first place, right? Like, you know, when I think about, you know, coaching ratings or scheme uniquenesses and you know some of the stuff i'm trying to add to our models all the time like those are things that i'm listening to on podcasts or reading on twitter or having conversations you know one of the bigger parts of my job is you know we we have all 32 nfl teams as clients we have 100 100 uh, more than 100 fbs uh, teams as clients like i'm in meetings with them relatively frequently every week and it's just like when they ask me like football related questions, I'm like, oh, yeah, I never even thought about that before. And like, I don't care how good of a data scientist you are. 
you're not just going to be able to throw the data at a model and come out with those insights. You'd have to sort of plug, you know, you have to sort of codify those insights in there. And all of that to me is subjective. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Rob has mentioned this before, obviously, like he'll play, uh, he'll never play against his numbers, but he will, you know, veto a number per se, and then not play that game. I think it's, it's smart. Um, I, I just had this debate actually with um, my business partner, Julian, uh, last week in which we talked about how I don't think any model for sports betting can ever be 100% automated. So if you just have something that's like, okay, as soon as this happens, I'm going to play this, or, you know, it pulls in the numbers and automatically bets for it. I think, I think it's a, a 100% chance that you're going to lose money by betting that just based on some of the factors you're saying, and then some other market dynamics, you know, like when something does go against you, you're not going to be able to be like able to adjust that on a fly if it's all automated. So I do like the subjective stuff. Uh, one thing we wanted to ask you uh, coming in was about those PFF grades. Anytime somebody mess mentions starting a football model, what a lot of people will you know say is they've built it using the PFF data. What I've recommended to some people in the start in the past as a start is to use that PFF game data and say, hey, try to build your player level model using this to start. It's nothing that's unique. It's obviously out in the public. It's behind a, a you know small paywall, but anyone can afford that uh, small subscription and see what it is. So do you incorporate those uh, data grades or those player grades in each of your models? And if so, anything different that you do that you know the public might not do? Yeah, and I think I, Rob was talking about this on Ed's podcast, um, how, and I, I agree with him that like, the the law the more ubiquitous they get in the marketplace the harder time those unadjusted grades have at winning right like because you know as you said they're they're folded in like we you know george and i had more success in 2017 betting our grades than we did in 2018 well 2018 was the first time that pff elite was a product that people could buy and they could buy the access to the grades so it, the, you know the, the efficient market happens and it happens quickly um yeah, I do use them. I the, the thing is, is, you know, and I have different access, like I, I use the play by play grades, and I normalize them differently. And I update the normalizations relatively frequently. And I adjust them for opponents. So it, it's so much different than what's on the website, you know. And again, that's part of like what I just said. And I think what you said, Johnny, which is like no system that's perfectly put in production that set it and forget it. Like over time, that thing's going to lose because of the way that the market sort of, you know, ad adjusts to it. That's why we try to add new features to what we do every single year so that less of that happens. But yeah, for me, I, I kind of do, I think what Rob described on Ed's podcast or uh, Ed's podcast and like a, add a little PFF to it, which is, you know, you have to take the, you have to take the grades and you have to normalize them with respect to things. So for example, you know, one of the things for example, in our zero to hundred grades that are currently in PFF elites that, that are not, it doesn't factor them in, but I factor them in is like what an RPO is. So, you know, if you look at 2018 is when our grades changed. Well, 2018 was only the second year that we charted RPO. So none of our normalization factors included that, but obviously RPOs affect the way in which a quarterback, like the windows a quarterback has. And like, ultimately you want to find the quarterback's true strength because in a game where, situations aren't conducive to being able to coddle him you he's either going to be good or he's going to be bad and, and you know so that's one thing for example so if i look at a grade like as a plus 0.5 on a play but it was with an rpo and it was thrown in 2.1 seconds i'm just gonna be like well any quarterback can make that throw so it's really like a 0.1 grade right and like you make those little itty bitty adjustments 
But then also there's an aspect of, you know, using the actual statistics, right? Because, you know, for example, there are aspects of our grades that are, that are hard, right? Like, like defensive back play. Like if you look at correlations with offensive linemen, our pass blocking grades are really stable year to year. If we tell you the guy is a good pass blocker, he's a good pass blocker. If we tell you a corner is pretty good, like Trayvon Diggs, for example, like I'm just less confident in in the industry's ability to, to measure cornerback play. So like I try to ensemble a bunch of different pieces of information to say this corner is an X. And and also you have to draw bigger error bars around that and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's sort of my, my, my sort of approach is to say, look, the PFF grades are extremely useful. I have better access to them than a lot of people. And I try to take advantage of that better access by folding in more context uh, and, and finding where they're weaker so that I can supplement it or have just built more uncertainty into the model based upon where they're weak. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong. These PFF grades, um, they are done by way of human watching the game. Uh, each individual play, slowing it down, rewatching it and saying, okay, this play is this grade. Um, and it's done, you know, consistently, I guess, as you can throughout. Is that correct? Yeah. Every single, every single person who grades games has a, basically a, uh, manual that they go by. Um, and they give, they're basically instructed to give out a, a grade between minus two and two in increments of 0.5 that are not supposed to be adjusted, right? So that like if a guy makes a 15 yard pass that's on the ta on target, the guy makes the throw, it's completed, like they get a plus 0.5 and they're not supposed, the grader's not supposed to think, oh, it's second and 10. So it's a little bit easier than third and 10, right? Then I, I'm supposed to go in and, and you know, and, and historically, and the current product was, pro you know, the zero to hundred grades were before me, but like the, the basic, you know, tenant is the same. It's easier to get a pressure if you're a pass rusher on third and 10 than it is on second and 10. So that plus 0.5, once it's normalized, is worth more on second and 10 than it is on third and 10. And, you know, over time, and this is like, I think the biggest thing that a sports better can learn is because the game of football is so non-stationary, like over time, the differences between second and third down evolve. Over time, the difference between play action and RPO evolve. Over time, you know, and, and unfortunately, like I think when you have a product that's public facing, you can't, like you have to, you have to sort of do the trade-off between changing a grade, right? Because the math changes. If, how often are you allowed to do that before the public loses faith in what that grade means? But as a sports better, you don't actually care. You just want to win. So you have to, you know, sort of change those grades, you know, every week if it's necessary. You have to retrain the models every week if necessary. So that's kind of the the sort of trade-off that you have to have between having public face and grades and then also trying to use them uh, you know, to better play fantasy football with. How, how confident are you guys in the consistency of those grades? So obviously when it's done by a few, like a few different people, right? If it was one person doing every single grade, then you would have confidence that at the minimum they're consistent, whether they're accurate or not. How confident are you, uh, your company in the consistency of that? I think, well, because we do double blind everything. So we have two people on every single game and then we have a reviewer. So I'm fairly confident in the, in, in, so two questions. I, I'm, I'm, I think the statistical noise is, is normally distributed around zero with a very small variance. The, the concern that I sometimes have and I think is reasonable is whether we're measuring the right thing. So those are sort of two different questions. Like, 
do and and you you guys in the notes brought up Kirk Cousins versus Matthew Stafford. That's a perfect question, right? The perfect question is Kirk Cousins is very good at doing what they ask him to do, and that's what if if we're measuring that too much, then we can give a grade on Kirk Cousins that's not reflective of the type of player he is, and like maybe Matthew Stafford's asked to do harder things, and maybe the difficulty of those tasks has evolved away from the current normalizations and you get sort of this disconnect in what's real. Um, I'd like to think, and I, I could pull it up, I'd like to think that our internals, you know, after modeling it out a little bit more, would have Stafford ahead of Cousins, but like there's still this question of like, the charting data is the charting data. Like what we give him as a raw grade is what we give him as a raw grade. And, and so like, that's always my concern. I don't have a pro, like I think the humans do a good job. My issue is almost always, are we, can you measure the game consistently in a way that is capturing what's real? And I think for the most part, we do a good job, but I think unless you have a skeptical eye towards it, then you, you, you don't know. And so it's my job to have a skeptical eye towards a lot of those things. Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying in general here. And I think one thing to, to preach, and I, I use PFF grades all the time, for anyone who doesn't doesn't know what we're talking about, pff.com, you can check out the player grades. They are behind a paywall. I think it's well worth it. They're part of my handicapping in the off season and in season as well. I think with any whether grading system or even actual statistical metrics, whether that's EPA per play, success rates, yards per play, whatever you want to use, there's always going to be outliers regardless. There's always going to be some metrics that make some players look better than others or worse than others. The one that stands out for PFF is always Kirk Cousins. I see you get a lot of commentary on that, Matt Stafford being like a league average or slightly above average quarterback. Uh, but if you look at EPA per play, for example, there's guys like Jalen Hurts who come in above average. I don't know if that's inclusive of data this last week, but it shocked me. I remember looking last week at Jalen Hurts EPA per play and I'm like, I watch, I've watched so many Eagles games this year and this guy stinks. Like he <laughs> he cannot make a read. He's constantly rolling out to his right. It feels like every play is a prayer with him. Um, but I, I think like it, it doesn't matter. Whatever system you use, there's going to be some sort of outliers. And for me, I think there's people who are very partial to one way of doing things or the other. And I'm very partial to like the crowdsourcing approach and just using as much information that's available to you. And I wonder internally... Eric, if you guys do stuff like that, where potentially you do see a ranking like Kirk Cousins third in the league, and there's some sort of internal discussion of what is causing this? Is there a way for us to improve this going forward? Because we don't actually believe Kirk Cousins is the third best quarterback in the NFL this year. What does that internal process look like on a weekly basis? Yeah, I mean, I think every, so I run research and development. I, you know, I have a lot of people, you know, work under me. And I, I want to I, I want them all to feel as though they can question our data without being afraid of being fired or question the models that we make. So we we have PFF War, which is what we sell to teams, but oftentimes it'll make its way into some of our content. There are players who you know are more valuable than others that I, I sometimes wonder if we're capturing the right value system there. Um, one great example, so last year during the draft, you know, everybody was wondering why Justin Fields ha ha was falling in the eyes of many. Justin Fields was not only somebody that our numbers liked, our data liked, um, but it was somebody who film Twitter liked and everybody liked. And, you know, everybody was a big fan of Justin Fields. 
And one of the things that I've been doing is, is collecting scouting reports that were publicly available and doing what's called latent semantic analysis on them. So essentially parsing the words out in, in, in scouting reports and looking for similar scouting reports. And then sort of doing a matching algorithm on, okay, this guy was similar to that guy. Okay, what was his career war? What's going to be this guy's career war? And the really interesting thing was Justin Fields was among the five first round quarterbacks, the worst, he had the worst score in this semantic analysis. So it was just one of those things where you're like, okay, I don't even necessarily know if I agree with Justin Fields falling to 11, but at least I know where it's coming from. And, and you know, a lot of times it's scouts just really don't like the guy. And you know, that's good to know because you can, you know, the, the worst thing is to not know, right? If, if you're betting a game and it moves from two and a half to three and a half and you don't know why, that's a bad place to be in. You might not agree with the move, but at least if you know where it comes from, you can know whether or not, you know, everybody talks about if the number moves against you, do you double down or do you quit betting? Well, that can be the reason, right? If, if, if Justin Fields moves from, you know, pick three in your mind to pick 11 and you don't know why that move is happening then you'd be foolish just to you know dismiss it offhand. And I, I think that's a lot of what we try to do. I, all of our models, so for example, on the website that we have both in fantasy but also in betting, are an ensemble. Like we ensemble many different metrics together and that the messaging is hard there, right? And, and I agree. The one thing that I think is great about sports betting is I think in sports media, people like to hang banners for their own takes and they use statistics to do that. Like, oh, you know, I, I was a Kirk Cousins defender this entire time and look at his PFF grade, I'm right. And it's like, well, no, I'm trying to find out who, who to like this weekend on the betting market. Like that's, you know, that matters to me. I don't really care if I, if I look stupid trying to find the truth. Very interesting, very well said. Uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by a lot of stuff that PFS, PFF does in general. Um, particularly because you guys do have a lot of offerings that are unique to competitors in market. There's other people doing player grades, of course, not at the scale that you guys are doing them, but there's like these unique things like offensive play caller ratings, um, which, I mean, I think it's a great idea. I'm curious where these ideas come from and what goes into building out something like an offensive play caller rating. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's it's a, a lot of times it's like B2B clients that like, you know, like let's say an agent will pay us some money to like find who the best coaches, upcoming offensive coordinators are and, you know, so that they can possibly have a client who ends up being a head coach in the NFL. Like a lot of times it's that. A lot of times it's, um, you know, just wanting to add like, because honestly in the, in the NFL, if you make like a silly little ELO model and add a quarterback adjustment to it and... I mean, you can get a decent amount. Of, like, the, the hardest part about NFL betting is, like, not that much work gets you 95% of the way there. But, like, 5% means is the difference between going broke and making money. And so if, if everybody, in my opinion, part of it was the B2B stuff. But part of it was also just this, like, if you're not trying to find weird things to, to help you, you're probably not trying hard enough. So like for me, I was saying, okay, well, we have play-by-play -play data. We know who the play caller is on each play. And we have player grades to tell you how good a team is, like component-wise. And we know how good the opponents are. We also know how random plays are. So we know what plays matter, what plays don't. You can sort of 
kind of look and say, well, what, what would you expect a team to do on this play? What did they actually do? And how repeatable was that actually to do thing? And then you add those up, you weigh them by how meaningful those pieces of data are, and you end up with a pretty good list. And, and you know, the other thing that I use is what's called scheme uniqueness, which is a little bit different than play caller ranking, which is to say how essentially how far from the, the average play caller you are. I found that in the betting markets, if you are a unique play caller, you do get a little bit of an edge, you know, winning and losing games. And so while I don't necessarily think Kyle Shanahan's a genius, I think he does something so unique that teams have to adjust for him. And that, you know, that's why I'm not, you know, or even the Rams too. Like I, I don't necessarily, you know, know if McVay, like he doesn't go for the right fourth downs. For, and in many ways, he's kind of a donkey on a lot of things. But he runs a unique scheme that you have to prepare for. And so if you factor that into your models, then, you know, I, I think that it gives you a little bit of a, you know, you, it gives you a vector that's pointing differently than everybody else's. I love the conversation of coaches uh, in the NFL. And this is something that comes up a lot because I'm someone who's very critical of fourth down decisions in game. And when coaches make decisions that clearly cost the team some expected win probability, however... I do like to hear you say things like that in regards to guys like McVay and Shanahan, who I've long maintained are very good game planners in general and call good games. And I think there's so much that goes into coaching that we kind of boil it down to, okay, are they making the right decisions on the on the sideline? Do they know when to use their timeouts? And all that stuff matters, but there's so much on top of it that goes uh, into game planning on a weekly basis. Um, you know, how... how um, non-traditional is a coach willing to get in, in in mindset like i think of guys like kevin stefanski um who run like a very different type of offense and um I, i'm just there, there's not really even a question here i was just very focused and uh, in on on what you were saying there because it really rings home and i think a lot of times people just lump in these coaches into their in-game decision making only and forget about everything else that goes into coaching, getting your team prepared for a game. Um, Mike Tomlin, for example, I think he's horrible in game decision maker, but a great motivator of his team. And he's constantly gotten results when his team's a big underdog in the past. And I, I wonder if there's some sort of hidden factor there that we don't account for with Tomlin just being able to get his team up for big games and things of that nature. So I think that's just really interesting. And it's purposely why I put the grades in in a linear way, because I, to me, I feel like you know, you talk about cluster injuries, but I think there's the opposite effect. It's sort of like cluster brilliance, right? Which is, yeah, I think the good coaches can take Tyreek Hill and Patrick Mahomes and make them more than A plus B, you know what I mean? And I think, you know, that, that could be some team chemistry, but it could also be uh, part of Andy Reid that makes, you know, some players better than the sum of the parts. There's also, you know, how good is your weakest link? Like a lot of the research that I've done recently is, is sort of not looking at necessarily the best player in a secondary, but looking at the third best player in a secondary. Not, not necessarily, like the one big leak that I had, you know, watching the Chiefs in the Super Bowl was, you know, they're great at one and two wide receiver, but Tampa spent five day two picks on secondary over the last three, four years. And if you don't have the third guy to go to, like you can be suffocated. That's why Tampa, you know, had Green Bay and, Kansas City's number in the playoffs. Like there are all kinds of these great like things about football that weren't true five years ago, ten years ago. And I think that you know the play, play caller thing is another one. It's like 
the fourth down decision stuff wasn't even a big deal until some guys started going for different ones. When they were all kind of silly on them, it didn't even matter. And that was why the the Tomlins and the, the you know, even Pete Carroll, like guys like that who are good motivators, but not great tacticians, those, those were the guys that won. And now they have to scrap a little bit more um, because some of these guys are picking up dollar bills off the ground in game. Yeah, I think the that's um, a great discussion. I, I think most people just criticize the in-game decisions and like the clock management stuff because it's just so easy to criticize. You see it on the TV. Like, what? how the hell did these guys just burn the timeout right there? Is this guy, is this a joke? Like, that's kind of what people are looking at their TV yelling. You have other times where you'll be like, really, they're going to punt this away from right here? Like, they're basically giving away the game. They're, you're down 16 points. If you punt here, you lose. Why would you not go for it, even though it is fourth and 16? So the average person who's watching, I think, could understand those decisions much, much more than they can, um, you know, play calls, motivating different schemes. Like, oh, you got to play here. Or, or like, why is this guy on the outside today versus this other player who's playing here? So I just think overall, it's so much easier to criticize the um, the in-game you know, tactics and the in-game stuff like that, where it's just obvious it's on the screen. And now with the way we all, we are, we're all on, you know, gambling Twitter and in, entrenched in that whole world. And now, you know, one person says it, and then you look out for it for the next game. You're like, wow, you're right. Like they should have gone for it on, for they should have gone for two down uh, 14, you know, with five minutes left in the game. And now that that goes out once Matt David out tweets it out. Another guy tweets it out. Now everyone thinks that, you know, that's the right play. And it's so obvious to everyone, but, you know, two weeks ago, they didn't even know it. That's kind of how it is now. The Ben Baldwin bot, the amount of quote tweets of the Ben Baldwin bot on Sundays with the the poor decision-making, I think those dominate my Twitter feed nowadays versus what it was three years ago. The surrender well, index is better. <laughs> surrender index is great the too. Surrender, the, the surrender index for anyone doesn't know, go follow it. One of the funniest accounts. It's whenever somebody punts, um, it gives you like an index score of like basically... Uh, how cowardly the punt yeah, how, was. how cowardly that punt was like <laughs> yeah exactly I, I think it's interesting too because there are there we're all evolving as like i would say like numeracy is sort of the is what i would consider um you know sort of the word there and to me part of the thing about being a great coach is is winning games by multiple scores being the type of team that can that can boat race another team and to, to the point where those decisions don't matter. A lot of the Ben Baldwin bot tweets, and, and Ben's a great friend, like I, I respect his work tremendously. It's like, you had a 5% chance to win if you went for it, you had a 3% chance to win if you didn't. And that 2% is like nothing, right? Like that's nothing because you were overmatched at coach to begin with, even before any fourth down decisions were even made. And I think in when you're trying to bet games, I know a lot of NFL games are close, but some of them aren't. And I think that the big thing is, it, you know, obviously what you want to be able to do is, is reliably find the differences that are, you know, have a high probability of being worth more than two scores in a given game. I think the timeout usage uh, towards the latter half of the second half um, or the, yeah, the latter half of the second half is largely what gets me as a, as a football fan and just watching these coaches like look around the quarterback, sometimes running up and spiking the ball for no reason, rather than using a timeout. And I've long wondered, and you do consult, you, like you said, you consult for 32 different NFL teams. I've long wondered when we're going to see a day where there's just like an analytical guy on the sideline who's consulting, literally standing right next to the coach and saying, you need to use a timeout here. Don't let this clock drain. 
and and I'm I'm shocked it hasn't happened yet. I'm I'm I don't know what the reason for it is, Eric. I don't know if you have any hypotheses. Um, whether it's just that the, these coaches want full control. I mean that that's all I can think of off the well, top of my head. There are some that have them. I think you wouldn't be surprised by who they are. Daniel Stern is the sideline analytics coach for the Ravens, and you rarely see them make stupid mistakes. Um, George Lee and John Park uh, both work for the Indianapolis Colts, and they they that's kind of their responsibility. Um, both of those guys are really sharp, and you really don't see Indianapolis make a lot of – Indianapolis is bad because their quarterback kind of stings. They're not bad because Frank Reich is an idiot. Um you know, the Cincinnati Bengals um, have, you know, now somebody in the headset. Um, it, it's it's not as frequent, right? But it, but it does exist for a lot of teams. Um, but I, I think it's, I mean, think about this. Like, what has always been the, um, you know, sort of like response to self-driving cars? It's always been like, I'd rather have a way higher death rate, but be in control of my own destiny than allow for one death to happen with a, a driverless car. And I think coaches are way more like, you know, I'd rather make these mistakes myself. <laughs> Fair enough. I got yeah. a question for you. Eric. Do you think Mike Vrabel is a good coach? Uh, I this think is an Mike... internal, this is an internal debate that we have a lot. Yeah. And this is why it's being asked just for, for uh, context. So I was somebody who, was conflicted because I have a decent amount of season season long bets on the Titans, but I also called them the 2020 Vikings because of going into the year, I sort of thought that they were top heavy at receiver and sort of thought that their offensive line was going to crumble and they had a Kirk Cousins at quarterback, which they're all those are all true. The defensive renaissance that they've had, the the sort of like development that guys like Harold Landry and Jeffrey Simmons and guys like that have had has been unforeseen and I think unpredictable. Um, Vrabel is not a good fourth down decision maker. In I, I, you know, he's just too erratic. Uh, you know, the one against the Ravens was one of the worst in the NFL last year in the playoffs. But I think he's he's of that Tomlin ilk where, for whatever reason, that team does play hard for him. And I think that they punch a little bit above their weight class. So my answer is a is a tepid yes. I agree with you. I, I I'll never get over the was it Titans Ravens last yeah, year in the playoffs, which which was the punt I think from midfield late in the game. I mean that to me, it it, it was a really bad decision. Uh, but I I will say this about Vrabel. Like I don't know how much of this is on the head coach or the OC, but even first game of the year this year they get smoked by Arizona. It's a game where they completely got away from the offense that they ran last year with all the play action that they were running. I believe they called the fewest play action plays in the entire league in week one. And then we've kind of seen them revert back to form. I feel like that's kind of on the head coach that just goes to the OC and says, we got to do something different here. Like I, I do feel that Vrabel has shown enough and it's very hard to argue with results as well. On top of that, you look at the gauntlet of teams that they've beaten over the course of the last month. I think at some point you just have to say, okay, you know, maybe he is costing them some win expectancy here and there, but at the end of the day, they're winning games. Yeah, no, I think, I think so. I mean, beating Buffalo, Kansas city, Indianapolis and LA in a row. And two of those wins by multiple scores is a pretty good feather in the cap. The, the hard part is, is always, and this is where I get like kind of messed up as a math person. It's like all these things that a coach does has to have these small incremental added, you know, additional probabilities added to them. And then 
if you piss away like five to 10% of that on one play, it is tilting. Like, and I just, and, and I, so to me, it's, it's really hard because those decisions are so easy and they don't take like the three of us could make those decisions. And we, I don't know nearly as much football as Mike Vrabel does. Like that's the stuff that tilts me is like the, the, it, you have all this domain specific knowledge that can help you get there, get 5% of the way there. And then the, the, you're, what you're required to do is the easy step and you fail at that like that. So I, I'll never give a wholehearted yes to him, but certainly, as you said, you can't argue with the fact that this is a team that has gone over their season win total all three years he's been the head coach. So I, I like him. The argument we have with Rob is like, I, I like him. I think he's a good coach, probably one of the best in the league. You know, not definitely not in the top five, but definitely I think he's in the top 10 for sure. And the reason I say it is, um, yes, he does mess up on a lot of those decisions, but I don't think he doesn't understand the analytics. I, in fact, based on the way I hear him talk, either after the game and in interviews or even just process throughout the game, he does understand it. He's just more of an old school coach who also takes into account what percentage chance he thinks in the moment his team is going to convert that fourth down. So a lot of people say like, oh yeah, Harbaugh goes for it all the time on fourth and one. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a little easier to go for on fourth and one when you have Lamar Jackson and when your offense picks that up at an insanely high clip and when he could basically scramble for that if he wants to at, at any given time, right? Versus when you look at these bad decisions, and I'm not excusing the any punts at the 40 ever, but if you look at it, what I think is he's like, wow, okay, I need to convert this. And he's really saying like, looking at his offense, he's like, Tannehill's been playing absolute trash. I have no one right now. Like, Henry's not going to pick up six yards here. Like, I'm going to punt this ball because we're not going to get it. And he, he, he's making decisions in his mind based on that, which whether it's good or not, is you know it is what it is but then when you when you take out that i think he does a lot of other things well you know the whole motivational aspect in terms of like play calling schemes things like that but on top of that one thing i will say is the guy is great at clock management and this is not just like last week and it's not because they have derrick henry but you know if he's up he will bleed the clock down he will absolutely preserve and hold on to his timeouts which is something that some coaches like you know okay first half whatever burn all your timeouts doesn't matter second half you better hold those timeouts and use them as if they're like pure gold because you you can't just be burning those whenever you know to oh we need a different play no you need to hold those and to he, prevent the delay that. a game on first yeah. down like yeah. these are absurd decisions exactly. and, and he's he's doing that he's run a couple of really good really good clock schemes if you remember like a couple of years ago versus the patriots or he'd yeah. like take those delay games and like so all in i think you know he manages clock well he call plays well a couple fourth down decisions. I wish he would. You'd obviously go for it, but I do think he is a. I, I will say a good coach, not the best in the league. So I'm not going to say I'm Mike Vrabel truther. He's the best coach in the league. He's not. He's up there, maybe like seventh, eighth best. But um, based on the analytics community, they'd probably have him as one of the worst, and I don't think that's true. I, yeah, I certainly don't believe that. But like, I don't believe he's one of the worst. Like, I think there's so many bad coaches that like there's there's no way he could be shoved there, but. Yeah, I, I just have a hard time. It's like you paid Derrick Henry the money, and then you're you're worried about fourth and two because like that. That's to Rob's point about aggregation. It's like I if if I'm a head coach, and I know this is hard because like football people, especially former players, are just not wired to think this way. But I just have like way less confidence in my own ability to to handicap the probability of making that fourth down than a model that's based on the history of football. 
you know, and like, and that's, that's well calibrated and stuff that that's basically my only thing against that. But I, I mean, yeah, that that's always the comeback that these guys have, um, which is why I think a lot of win probability models now, you know, if you look in the private space that are the ones that are sold to teams, like they have like uh, the ability to adjust how good you think your line is, how good you think your offense is, that kind of thing. I'll rewind to a half hour ago as I was able to do some math here where you said that you're scoring environment this year you thought it would be similar to 2018 2018 46.6 points per game so far this year 46.8 points per game so halfway through the season exactly halfway through that's a job well done it's very close and it's likely scoring will decline in the latter half of the year due to weather and quarterback injuries and stuff so pretty good guess there Uh, I also just want to uh, ask you about something that I find interesting because as you said, Eric, you guys consult for 32 NFL teams. That's every single NFL team. How do the, you don't have to give away like any secrets. I understand there's a lot of privileged information with these teams. I'm not asking you to do that, but how do you provide each of these teams with specific value knowing that like knowing that you're consulting for every team in the league, right? I'm just curious what goes into this process, those meetings with the teams specifically how do they get value when every single team in the league is using the service? It's a great question. I think it's twofold. I think the, the first one is we give everybody the raw data and the tools. So every team gets a dashboard called PFF Ultimate and they can use it how they see fit. You're allowed to, like every single team in the NFL knows how to go into PFF and say, I want to watch all 10 plays where my fullback pass protected and, you know, against the linebacker. Like all that, like that's just an efficiency hack that teams can choose to use or not. And a lot of teams are power users, a lot of teams, some teams aren't. And then there are like, and then, you know, we, we have some sub products that are sold. So there are some differential pricing. So some teams will get a little bit more like maybe college to pro projections, um, you know, uh, contract projections, that kind of thing. So sometimes it's a little, it just costs a little bit more. Um, and then the big one is just like, some teams know to ask and some teams don't like, so I, you know, there was a, a cornerback that was on the trade market. I mean, you guys could probably guess who it ends up being, but like there was a, a weekend where one of the teams just called me and said, Hey, what would you, what would, what would you price this player at? You know, what do you think is a fair trade for this player? And it's like every team has access to that information, but only, only the team that actually asks is the one that ends up with it. So I think, you know, it is, it's not the easiest thing, right? Because, you know, for us, especially in, in research and development, like what the, I, I believe, and I think it's true, and I think it's smart for the teams to do this, teams knowing that we are a client with, every, have a client in all 32 teams, won't necessarily ask us every question. They'll ask a different question so that, you know, because what, you know, the, the tricky thing is, is you don't want a team to ask you a question and then for it to become a PFF product that all 32 teams now have. So it, it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing that I, we're very mindful of, um, but it, that, you know, a lot of it is just the information, you know, some of the really good teams just want the information. And I, I respect the heck out of that. Some teams want a little bit further, you know, more you know, different, different levels of analysis. And then, you know, that's what they end up paying for. And then some teams are somewhere in between. Have you ever got questions from a team where they said like, Hey, we're looking at signing this player. And then you just had to flat out tell them like, buddy, <laughs> do not sign that player. I actually, um, there's a great story because uh, he, this player has actually become a friend of mine. Um, but my first week on the job, uh, a team asked what Ricardo Allen's war was. And so I sent them uh, his war. 
And I like didn't think anything of it. And this was actually like two war models ago. So I don't even think the number was all that good, to be honest with you. Um, and I, I log into Twitter like three days later and I see Schefter's like the, the, the Falcons have signed Ricardo Allen to a three-year $19 million deal. I'm like, okay, this is kind of neat. And now you know, he's, he, he plays with the Bengals and he's a friend. But like the um, th- that kind of stuff's really fun. Um, not so fun or, or maybe, you know, there, there are other aspects of it that maybe aren't, which is, you know, uh, you know, some of the negative things that are said, you know, there are, there is some pushback sometimes, but, um, but that's all part of it. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a game that you have to make sure that you be very careful in. And I think one of the issues, you know, with being a company that's forward facing in the consumer space, but also, you know, back, uh, you know, behind the scenes in the B2B space is you have to, you have to make sure that you're, you're careful. I want to chat with you a little bit, Eric, about um, bridging content with betting just in general. So uh, I'm a big fan of uh, PFF forecasts. Uh, I believe you guys record it live on Sunday nights, but I usually am in bed after the Sunday nighter and I end up watching it on Monday. Um, you guys do a guess the lines segment, which I mean, it's not innovative, but I, I find that the way you guys do it and go through the games is just really entertaining uh, and you provide a lot more context around the games in general. But when you're doing your guess the lines, you often have an opinion on the game. You're saying, uh, you know, I made this game 13 and the line seven and a half. I'm going to bet this. Or I... my question is, you're doing this very early in the week. Um, do you ever are you ever concerned that you might either have enough of a following now or potentially have enough following in the future where that affects your bottom line going forwards? Uh that's a good question. I mean. I'm certainly not like I bet games and I bet, I think as a meaningful amount of money, but I'm not professional at it. So, you know, I'm not getting down as much, you know, as somebody, you know, and, and early in the week, you're not allowed to get as much down on games. So, but yeah, I mean, there's always that concern. And I think that that's, that is the ethical issue with content and betting, right? Like the con- the ethical issue in content and betting is trying to be entertaining, which I think you know, that's hard to do, right? And I think that George and I have really found a groove where we're a little bit competitive with each other. We, we're entertaining, we tell jokes, but also trying to trying to give up, give out meaningful information. And like, I think like for the most part, I mean, I would think it was until week eight before we had one of those plays that had negative closing line value. Like it was, you know, we were, I, I think that, you know, we add some value there. Um, and there is that concern. There always is that concern. I talked to you guys about 2017 versus 2018. Like 2017, you know, we had PFF grades and they were only available to us. And our, you know, when we wrote up picks, they did great. 2018, when everybody else had those same grades, they did horribly. And like, and so, you know, that is, you know, that's not something that, you know, escapes me, right? Like anytime, you know, you come up with something new and it's good, it's going to be factored in the market. There is too much money on the line, especially in these liquid markets for it not to be. And so I think like, and we only started doing this podcast, the guest lines for two years in, in a year from now, it might not have value. And we have to find a different way to, to be entertaining and find a different way to add value to the, the listeners. And, and I think my answer to the question is, I'm always concerned about those things and I'm almost always willing to cut bait on something if I know that, because my, my, my biggest concern is, is always like, you want to be truthful with people. You want to be, you know, you just, you just want to do this ethically. And I know that like, there are certain people who don't think that that's possible. And then there are certain people who don't care at all. And the answer is probably somewhere in between. And 
I think you just have to do with, with what you're comfortable with. I think there's a delicate balance there. I really appreciate your answer about the ethics of it. And, um, and I agree with you as someone who does a lot of content throughout the week myself. Now, the first piece I do is on Wednesday during the week. And there's a reason that I do my first piece of content on Wednesday, because if I were to do it earlier in the week, I'd be costing myself some value. But I think it, it becomes definitely a balancing act for me in particular of how much am I willing to give away now? Sometimes I will give a pick on a game, but I'm not saying that I'm misleading, but I will make it seem like I like it maybe a little bit less than I really do. I won't tell people like this is my biggest edge of the entire season because I don't want it to get blown up and that's going to affect me later in the week as well. So I do appreciate that it's a delicate balancing act. Um, I have noticed at times you'll 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 bring up um, you'll reference some offshore sports books that you bet at uh, and you'll bring up the lines right there. It looks like you actually sometimes place the bets in the middle of the show. Does that happen? Uh, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> cannot, he can't confirm or deny. Yeah, I, <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to get you in trouble with your employer, but yeah, sometimes I see it up and you're like, oh, I can't believe this line is is the way it is. And I just see you clicking away there and there's like a zoom in on you. I, I find it funny. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, and again, I'm not a content, you know, I, I, I did, to me, I think like whether it was teaching or now in my current job, which I feel is somewhat of a teaching job too. Like, I, I feel like the people, it's crazy, but people want to participate in this with you, right? Like, and I, and I have a, like, I fully do believe like, and I don't, and I don't want to, you know, unit shame anybody or whatever, but I do, I do sometimes have an issue like not participating in this exercise with the, the people who follow my work. Like I, I, I don't like to say, Hey, I like this. I like this bet a lot and then never bet it myself. Like, I just don't necessarily know if that's ethical. And, and you know, that's part of the rub too with like the, the look ahead stuff. Like every once in a while, I'm like, George, I'm gonna know what this line is because I'm gonna bet the look ahead line. So I'm, I'm cheating on this game right here because there's money to be made on this look ahead. And he's like, oh, that, that take, I'm like, but like, we also want our listeners to be smart and to, to bet look ahead lines and stuff. So like there's, it, it, I, I guess I'm coming to this idea of like, there's not a right answer except for being honest, I guess, and like, and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's a very delicate balance for sure. I do appreciate that. Um, hidden edges in the NFL. This is something I want to talk about. And I, I think you're a pretty good person to discuss this because uh, we've had chats both on the show and with just friends offline before um, where everyone has their own hypothesis of things that, are maybe potentially overvalued or undervalued in the NFL market. And that includes uh, the ability for people to quantify cluster injuries or to quantify coaching, uh, specific positional injuries that may be worth more or less. Uh, is there anything that comes to mind for you as potentially something right now that you see in market that could be overvalued or undervalued? Uh, I think a lot of the cluster injury stuff people are almost always aware of it. I don't know if they've quantified it the best yet. I mean, nonlinear modeling being what it is, like we know that two offensive linemen being out is worth more than two times one offensive lineman being out. The question is, is how much do you need to put that in there? I wrote an article at the beginning of the year about like what offensive line continuity meant and you know how the Kansas City Chiefs this year had twice as high of an implied Super Bowl win probability as any team in our data set 
that started the season with five new offensive linemen. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, the, the offensive line is not the reason, but like there are underlying reasons there why you would have five new offensive linemen and it's going to affect the rest of your roster. Um, you know, I talked about there, and there's a couple of these, these articles come out. I, there's one that's called How Fragile is Defense? I actually wrote it when the Corona, at the scouting combine in 2020, uh, right before we bailed out in the Sloan Conference in 2020 and didn't get COVID like all of you guys did. Um, I wrote, I wrote that article basically because I had the, the epidemiology in mind. I said, okay, well, if the weakest links of society don't follow the protocols, we're fucked. And, and I was like, what if the weakest players in the secondary don't actually do well? And so like, when you think about secondary play, I don't know if this is part of your modeling, but I, you know, I, I would assume so, but like, it's, if you actually look at who, like, you know, if I look at the chiefs, it's like Tyra Matthews, the best one. Javarius Ward's second best, Legarius Seed's third best, Daniel Sorensen's fourth best or fifth best or whatever best. And if he's out there, the defense does like their outcomes really don't depend upon Tyron Matthew. They depend upon Daniel Sorensen. So like that kind of thing, I think is a hidden uh, thing. Offensive line plays similar. Wide receivers actually that way too. And that was something that I never thought was true. I thought wide receiver was a very strong link system, um, but it's not. The defenses are a lot smarter now than they used to be. There's a couple things that uh, I'm, I'm fine to share these, but things that I feel that I've noticed uh, and just interested to get your take on them. So cluster injuries is a big one. Uh, it's kind of been like a term that's been coined now. I didn't really know where it started, but whatever. Multiple players being out at a specific position. For me, I find that the market reacts very quickly to that now without understanding the backup situation, where if you have potentially two starting cornerbacks out for one team, it's going to have a significantly different impact depending on which team that is and the depth that they have at that position. And I find what I found at least in the last two or three years is it's very much a rush to jump on top of this news. As soon as there's some news available that someone is going to be out, we need to immediately react because the line is probably going to move in that direction. People are correct in that the line is going to move in that direction because everyone's betting that way. But I feel like it's a lost art of being able to quantify the difference between that starter and the backup or those starters and the backups. Well, and I always thought that that's why top-down models like, you know, Massey Peabody and, and others had done so well for so long, which was qualitative betters overreacted to individual injuries and team, you know, bottom or top-up, you know, models were sort of fading that over, uh, you know, overcorrection. And now obviously with player level models and sophisticated quantitative betters using them, like, I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore, but that is the thing. It's like bridging the gap between being completely team level, which is wrong, but historically probably more right than overreaction and overreaction, you know, trying to find that delicate balance, which one is the most right. The second one is something that we've seen in recent weeks, uh, and it's why I bring it up, is we've seen a lot of starting quarterback injuries in the NFL so far this season where we get a lot of backups. And I feel like everybody is coming to some sort of conclusion on what that quarterback is going to, that downgrading quarterback is going to be worth. My hypothesis is that the downgrade is worth significantly less in the first game that that quarterback is playing, especially if it's a rookie or a small sample size quarterback where there's not a lot of game film available, then it would be for, you know, three or four games from now where that player has played a lot. Other teams have been able to see them. And I think we've seen that these backups have fared fairly well, especially in their first games or even coming in mid game. 
uh, partially because other teams are are preparing for the starting quarterback. They see a completely different quarterback at some point. I'm curious if you've done any work into that or, or you tend to agree. I agree with you. I think you can accomplish that mathematically, though, right? Because everything that anybody, everything that I think quantitative analysts have to do is about regression to replacement level somehow and or regression to the mean or something like that. And if a player doesn't have a ton of data in that situation, then like I that that's going to elicit the, the outcome you're describing, right? And if they get and if you're properly quantifying quarterback play, meaning like the Mike White situation where the guy throws for 400 yards because it's a bunch of dump offs, you're still not making him like a hundred, you know, you're, you're not grading him a hundred out of a hundred. You're saying, well, he's a, he's a decent quarterback whose outcome was great or he played decently, but his outcome was great. Right. And I think if you give it enough sort of time, like those numbers eventually converge to what there's, you know, the, the, uh, the uncertainty shrinks, right. And less of the good outcomes are in the probability space that you're thinking about. Right. Like does that, I mean, I feel like mathematically you can accomplish 70% of what you just described. I think you're right. Uh, it's some, I work with a, a partner, very intelligent, um, a guy who always, I mean, his advice for me all the time is, um, I'll be reluctant to pull the trigger on a game where we have an edge with a number. And I'll say, this is the reason that I don't want to bet this game right now. And he'll be like, that's fine. Let's not bet it now, but let's try to figure out a way to quantify your hypothesis now. Yeah. Let's look, dig into this and let's actually try to incorporate it in the model going forwards so that we're not making these subjective opinions. This is something I tend to do in the off season. I don't mess around a lot with this stuff in season, but it's on my list for this off season of I'm going to go back previous years and, and try to or try to attempt to quantify this quarterback, whether it's their first game in, second game in, third, so on and so forth. And that's going to be dependent on a number of things, I guess, depending on whether they've been a backup in the league for a long time or they've just come into the league. But I feel like this is something that happens quite frequently in the NFL now with the amount of quarterback injuries that we see. And I don't know that necessarily anyone has a really good grasp on what's going on in these first games. And there's just a lot of, of subjective guesses happening. Yeah, that's a good that's a good one. And with 17 week seasons, you're going to see more backups play. Like we've seen teams less um, confident about. Like I think Kyler Murray probably plays that game this week last year, but this this year they're going to let Cole McCoy play because they know the season's one week longer. And so I think it becomes even more important to actually get that right. Do you think we'll ever see what we see in the NBA now in the NFL with the you know the rest days, time management day, whatever you want to call it? Uh, they, they already have Rams Wednesday, which is like sort of like where they don't practice. Like most of veterans don't practice for the Rams on Wednesday. You, you, you see, yeah, I, you're going to see way more. I don't know if you're going to see load management in that players are just going to sit games when they're healthy, unless it's like week 17 or 18, just because there's only one bye and the playoffs are so like in the NBA, the playoffs, it's, you know, the best team wins most of the time, way more than in football. So, like, having the better seed, especially the buy, is way more important. Having a home game is more important. So I don't know if you'll see it quite as much, but you, I think you'll see it more, for sure. I, I think you'll see less really less moderately injured players play in the NFL from here on out. I don't think it will happen for games. I could see players getting way more time off in practice over the course of a week, but because each individual NFL game is worth so much more, 
than that of an NBA game or or Major League Baseball or NHL, which are daily sports. Uh, I, I just I find it hard to believe a team would just say, you know, we're going to punt one of our 17 games this year because we got some banged up players and that that needs some rest. I I just can't ever see that being a mentality in this. Sport. No, I'm not saying punted. I just mean like, well, obviously you're right. Like one NFL game is worth like you know roughly like five NBA games. So when you're benching Kawhi Leonard, it would be like benching for five games in a row, which they they wouldn't do. But what I was more saying is like. You know, we don't necessarily have an injury issue in the NFL, but like if your team is a 17 point favorite, there's no guarantee you're going to win. Uh, and I'm not saying bench your starting quarterback, but is there potentially a future we see where like, you know, Derrick Henry gets a game off and you look at his, the load he's been carrying so far. Like I think he was on pace to break either close to it or on pace to break the all time uh, touches record for, or sorry, carries record. But is there a, a day where, where it's like, okay, we're, we're, we're 13 point favorites. Uh, we're, we're a, a game up on the division. Um, Henry, you're going to rest this game. I, I think they could stagger it. Yeah. Like one week it's Camara, the other week it's Michael Thomas or something like that. That's um, what I mean. Yeah. I don't mean, I don't mean all at once that, and throw a game. I just mean like, yeah, rest, rest a guy, you know, rest the running back one week next week, you know, rest another guy or next week, you know, and probably not a quarterback, but more of the skill position players or, or key defensive players. Yeah, I, I, I think they're, everybody's so injured by the time the season's over that you can make a case that that's just going to be an injury-related thing now um, as opposed to just like load management being the reason. I, I could see situations where they dress all the players for a game and they gave some guy maybe half the series off. as a, Like this is going to have fantasy football impacts and people are going to absolutely lose their minds. But I, I could see that happen. We already do to some extent, right? Player gets a questionable tag. Um, they 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 just take a series off in some uh, instances, especially with like the soft tissue injuries. You see it a lot with quad and and hamstrings. Uh, but I I mean sports are evolving is the reality of it. I mean five years from now there's going to be things that are are very different from from um, the way that they are now. But the reality is just that each NFL game is so much more important than any other league, and that's why I just find it difficult to fathom uh, like players just taking full games off. I don't know that we'll ever get there. Fair enough. We'll revisit this in like three years, I guess, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, there's 18 games by then. We'll we'll, we'll really know, right? Or yes. yeah, or maybe more. Who knows? Uh, so, Eric, I, you got to give us a um, you know a circles off exclusive here because um, we you know we don't do clickbaity titles here, but we got to start. Like enough is enough. We every guest we have, it's just you know like it'll it'll be like uh, X X and X Y Z person joins for a discussion. That's that's all we do. But um, we got to go clickbait. You know, last last week we had the perfect opportunity with Colin Davey. We could have been like, Jeopardy champ explains how to win at Jeopardy. You know, like we got we to go clickbaity. So we, got, we need something here. Question I ask you is, it's a circles off exclusive. We'll hope, hope to get this episode up either today or tomorrow so it's still relevant. If I'm a GM right now and I give Eric a call and I say, Eric, I'm looking to bring in Odell Beckham Jr. What are your thoughts on him? What are, what are you responding to that NH, that NFL GM? Uh, what are how, what are you planning to pay for? Like what are, what are you planning to sign him for? That's a great and question. Actually, I mean, I have so, I have been talking to some not GMs, <laughs> but like, and I've been so, sort of. So what I'm saying is, is like if if they say, listen, I want to bring this guy in. Um, I want to like, what should I pay him? Do you think I should bring him in? Uh, do you think he'll be 
do you think he still has juice left? Basically, is what is if there, if someone asks you that, what are you saying? Yeah, I think Odell Beckham Jr. can add can add significant value to some teams. Um, as somebody who played wide receiver and tight end, like there were some quarterbacks who I just hated catching passes from, who were good quarterbacks, and there were some lesser quarterbacks who I really had a chemistry with and stuff. And to me, as much as people will poo-poo the idea that he and Baker Mayfield were like not meant for each other, like I think that's absolutely true. So uh, I, I think it's better for the Browns that he's gone. And let's say it's Kansas City. Uh, I think he'd make the Chiefs uh, a lot better. Yeah, I think there's definitely some situations where he would be a good fit. Obviously, obviously, he is not the same wide receiver that he once was. Uh, but I think for the right price, on the field, he can have an impact. It will always be, is the team willing to accept the off-the-field distraction risks as well? Some teams are more risk-averse. Some are full YOLO. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty respectable answer. I think so well thought official, of that. Official circles off prediction. Where is he, where's he, where's he going? Who's claiming him? Where is he playing this year, rest of the year? Well, he's a free agent now. So I think, um, man. I think he's going to end up in either Kansas City or New Orleans. And I will, I'll go with New Orleans. Okay, Rob? Um, not, not the favorite right now, but I think he's going to end up in Green Bay. That would be, that would be a nice one. I hope he goes to Green Bay. I mean, obviously everyone's thinking he's going to go to Seattle. So we'll see what happens there. I, I saw like Tampa Bay just said uh, it's a no go for uh, for Odell. I mean, I don't know why they would what they would need him for at this point. You know, they already even have like decent number four and five receivers that catch balls. But yeah, Green Bay would be it would be a great spot. New Orleans, you know, let's see what what they're gonna do the rest of the season. Obviously, the woes at quarterback now, and then yeah, Kansas City struggling. He could be. Imagine he goes with Mahomes and just and just lights it up again like he did with Eli Manning back in the day. That would be crazy. But one of the most underrated losses was Sammy Watkins, right? I mean, like he was like a reliable number two, and and the KC offense is desperately missing that right now. Yeah, so but he would also I think, leave at like every other game injured. So <laughs> that's well, I, it's I hard can't I'm not a doctor. I can't, and he's yeah, injured right now true. again, right? <laughs> Sammy Watkins played in two AFC Championship games with the Chiefs and had 100 yards in both of them. And, uh, you know, uh, I was at the Tennessee game in, in 19 and the, and, and this is true about the Raiders too. Like Henry Ruggs, not productive, but productive enough and fast enough where the defense has to respect your deep speed. I always thought that that was what Watkins provided. And you, you could tell that that was missing from their offense in the second half of last year. So if they could even get some of that back, I agree that, you know, I don't think it's necessarily going to put them in the Super Bowl. I think Pat has to play really well for them to get back to the Super Bowl. Um, but it could certainly help. For me, the guy over the last two or three years that I think um, there's some hidden value when he's been on the field is T.Y. Hilton in the sense that he draws so much in coverage when he's out there. And a lot of people look at the fantasy numbers as is, a lot of people are playing fantasy and be like, ah, oh, he's kind of gone downhill. And he's, he's obviously not the same receiver. But I look at the Colts off the, the opposing team's defensive schemes when the Colts have T.Y. Hilton on the field, and he just creates so much space for every other receiver. So that that was kind of one of the guys that stood stood out for me as uh, 
there's a bunch of them in the league, but maybe not the prototypical number one anymore, but teams do game plan for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those guys are important. And that was, that's all, that was always like the secondary effect you had with the truly elite deep receivers back in the day too, like Moss and Isaac Bruce and guys like that were also, there were always parts of great offenses because they opened things up for other people in, in addition to being productive. Yeah. Okay. So great discussion on the NFL. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, we do have one closing question, Eric, that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, if you could go back in time five years uh, and talk to the five-year-old version of yourself, uh, what would be one piece of advice that you would give yourself? So going back five years from now, five going years back from five now, five years ago yep. from today. Yes. I think every single person who bets would tell you that almost would, would hopefully tell you the same thing, which is you don't know that much. Fair enough. I think that's a great piece of advice in we, general. We got to cl- clip these all and put them all together once for a mashup. Like here's all the advice. It's going to be like buy Bitcoin. You don't know enough. Stop betting. Buy more Bitcoin. But that's this is what, this is what we get on this podcast. At, at least two thirds of the answers are I would have told myself to to buy crypto or buy Bitcoin. But um, yeah, for the actual advice, I mean, I I think that's a good one. It's it's short. It's simple. It makes a lot of sense. So uh, appreciate your time today, Eric. This is Eric Eager, the VP of R and D at Pro Football Focus, the co-host of the PFF Forecast. I highly recommend you check it out. Anyone who knows me knows that I don't pump stuff that I don't use or listen to in terms of content. I think it's really good. It's it's an hour-ish, an hour, I think it's like an hour 15-ish usually, um, Sunday nights after Sunday night football. Uh, but really good content. Love the breakdowns. I think it's quite unique. And anyone else uh, who's interested in checking out the player grades or any other of the content, check out pff.com. Eric, anything else that uh, you want to promote out there? No, it's, that's, uh, that's great. And it's, uh, it's, it's truly, uh, it's crazy, but like, I, you know, when, when people you respect also, you know, respect your work, it's, it's, it's such a fun ecosystem. So thanks again for the kind words and thanks for having me on. No problem. This has been episode number 31 of circles off. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review five stars and we'll talk to everyone next week.